Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Hurricane Ian tore through Florida and surrounding states, leaving more than 100 fatalities and a large swath of destroyed homes and businesses. It's difficult to prepare for the destructive force of such natural disasters, something experts predict will occur more frequently. Tribal emergency management officials are among those studying and learning from Ian and other unpredictable catastrophes and determining the balance of resources to devote to preparation. We'll hear from them right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Astronaut Nicole Mann is making history, becoming the first Native American woman to go to space. Mann is part of the NASA SpaceX Crew 5, expected to launch to the International Space Station Wednesday. This will be Mann's first space flight since becoming an astronaut in 2013. Mann is the spacecraft commander. In August, she talked to National Native News about the mission. So I will fly uh, myself and three other crewmates. We will launch from Kennedy Space Center in a Dragon spacecraft, which is built by SpaceX. And we will take a day or so to get to the International Space Station. And we'll stay on board for about six months to execute our mission. Our spacecraft will stay attached that entire time. Then at the end of the mission, we'll come back home and we'll splash down off the coast of Florida. Man, Round Valley Indian Tribe says she's proud to represent Native people. I think your your background and your heritage is an important part of who you are and your family and the community that brought you up. And so I think it's important also then to share with our communities what the amazing things that all of our, the people uh, that, you know, that we grew up with are, are executing and what they're doing. And so hopefully there's some young Native kids that are looking and see what amazing things, what amazing opportunities that they have in front of them. And I mean, a lot of those barriers that used to exist are really being broken down. Man is responsible for all phases of flight from launch to re-entry. She'll serve as flight engineer aboard the station. The team will conduct more than 200 scientific experiments during the mission. The Yurok tribe hosted the first statewide policy summit on missing and murdered indigenous people on Tuesday. The Northern California Tribal Summit on MMIP brought together tribal leaders, law enforcement, survivors, as well as state and federal lawmakers and academic researchers. Victim advocates were also in attendance. At a press conference, Yurok Vice Chairman Frankie Meyer says addressing MMIP needs a holistic approach. He adds the action needs to start now and include a number of partners, tribes, law enforcement, governments, and the nonprofit community. Meyer says MMIP did not happen overnight. It's an issue continuing for years. He urged the community to take it seriously. These are our people. These are our children. There are families. Walk out for today, and I look forward to the actions to come. The summit examined the historical and present-day contributing factors to issues involving MMIP and explored remedies to reduce risks to indigenous people in the U.S. Members of the Yakima and Grand Ronde nations asked the U.S. Supreme Court this week to hold the federal government accountable for bulldozing sacred sites to add a turn lane to a road near Mount Hood in Oregon. The native plaintiffs are seeking repair of the site, including removing an embarkment, replanting trees, and allowing the reconstruction of a stone altar. 
Plaintiffs say the area includes a burial ground. Tribal members say they've long used the land around Mount Hood to hunt and fish and for burials and ceremonies. The site at issue is along an old trading route, now followed by U.S. Highway 26. The tribal plaintiffs say they have long urged for protection. In 2008, the government bulldozed the site for the turn lane after failed negotiations with the government to restore the site. They pursued claims in federal court, urging protections under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and environmental laws. Lower courts have sided with the federal government. They're now taking their claims with Beckett Law Firm to the Supreme Court. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Officials estimate Hurricane Ian is responsible for more than 100 casualties. Emergency management officials are still surveying the extent of the property damage. Florida government officials are facing some criticism for not doing enough to prepare for and respond adequately to the storm. Those same criticisms are coming from residents of Puerto Rico, where the hurricane caused significant damage and loss of life. Today, we talk with tribal emergency management experts learning from such storms, We'll also gauge how prepared some tribes are for looming threats of hurricanes, wildfires, flooding, and other disasters. But we also want to hear from you. Is your community prepared for a natural disaster? Has your community faced a recent natural disaster? Or are you personally prepared if a storm hits? Tell us about it by joining our conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Or you can post a comment on our social media pages, our Twitter handle, 180099Native. Looking forward to hearing from our listeners today. Thoughts and comments. Joining us first from the Bronx in New York is Monse Torres. He's a Puerto Rican radio producer and activist. Monse, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, for, uh, for counting on me uh, to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, we really appreciate you too, Monse, and I know you're busy. You're heading to Puerto Rico tonight, in fact. How will you be assisting with the recovery efforts there? Well, actually, I, I reside in Puerto Rico. Um, I, um, I have family. My, my, my family is all there. I have family also in, in, the, in the Bronx and New York and all over the, the United States. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I was born in, in Puerto Rico, and um, we— um, uh, first and foremost, I'm gonna. We just got light, 
for the first time yesterday. Uh, we got the water turned back on about three days ago, so we were without water for nine days and without electricity uh, for 12, 13 days since Fiona uh, landed. Um, so my first priority is family. You know, I'm going to go make sure that... Uh, uh, that that everything is uh, as as good as can be before I, I uh, before we 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 enlarge into circle and um, which they've done already. I I was not at I was not in Puerto Rico when the when the hurt when the hurt when the hurricane um, passed. Uh, but uh, the we we have you know the protocol is you know we we take care of and make sure that our doors are. Uh, uh, are safe and then we go next door and then we, we they, you know that's that's how we're used to doing it so i'm i'm going to go a little bit late in the process um, um more in, in in terms of uh you know the immediate response um but yeah but right now uh, what what we've done uh here we learn from experience you know it's not the the, the hurricane's fault that it's a hurricane um Meaning that you know it, it's it, we we we're used to these hurricanes. Our ancestors expected them. We should expect them, um, as opposed to use them uh, for as a tool for for different manipulative uh, situations. So we we you know we we know that the the hurricanes are coming. We know what to expect. A lot of us know how to prepare for them. Um, we prepare for them. Uh, but it's inevitable that 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 water uh, inundates everything, and and so it's just a matter of of the way that we respond, um, and the way that our communities respond. Which, like I explained earlier, just natural reflex. We were just we're used to that by now, and how to respond in terms of clearing the debris and and uh, and uh, you know the the fruits and vegetables that that are discarded gathering them and and making sure that we have them because we know we're not going to have we're going to have long periods of time of not being able to go to the store or you know no gas or uh, so just surviving that uh in itself is a is a it's a thing you know getting used to that when there were getting used to the way that we have when it's when the when when we're living in times where uh, bridges can be, you know, uh, uh, put up with uh, in the back of a military truck. You know, there's bridges, but but they don't bring those bridges. You know, they, when when uh, we know that electricity and and the, and the mechanisms of the infrastructure can be done in ways that are safer and better for the people, but on purpose they're not done that way, so that when the storm does pass, then there's the need, and then there's. Uh, so uh, you know, okay. to try, trying to stay away from that, uh -huh. and, and and doing and, and the natural process of of getting through it, that's kind of where we're still at. at okay. This point. Well, Monte, you know, you you mentioned Fiona. So uh, the island of Puerto Rico. I mean, it's been like a one-two punch. I mean, you, you experienced Fiona, and then just a short while later, later comes Ian. And which of the the two hurricanes has has had the most? Uh, significant impact there in terms of damage to puerto rico yeah well we were able to dodge ian ian didn't really uh affect didn't us. really hit okay all right no much at all ian came uh if i'm not mistaken uh to the gulf coast uh 
and uh, it, it went like right through the middle. It kind of missed us. I think it went in between Venezuela and Puerto Rico, and it kind of like dodged us. Um, so, but but we, you know, we we just had uh, these these uh, these explosion these explosions that have been going on for the past three. Well, the earthquakes. Puerto Rico has become the place in the world that that has the most earthquakes in the last two years. And in terms of the most earthquakes per day, per month, per year, Puerto Rico has more earthquakes now than uh, Taiwan and Japan combined. Like it just this is astronomical for all of a sudden the way that Puerto Rico has been having these weird and so earthquakes. And, and I'm sorry. So, and what are what are you know your family? You live there. I mean, what are folks? thinking and, and how are they dealing with these increased disasters these hurricanes and with more frequency um what's that like in terms of just living day to day knowing that that your island that your homeland is um is changing so much and and these disasters just continue to occur i don't i don't i don't know if 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 there's more hurricanes than than before you know i don't mean maybe there's you know there's spikes here and there but i don't think that we're experiencing anything abnormal okay but the like earthquakes said, are occurring more frequently though right? yes so. well the earthquake the earthquake is definitely abnormal just in, in in every aspect of what they are that's a, a whole nother show uh, uh but but in terms of you know you speaking of one two you know even three punches you know maria and then the, this one and and, and and it's really not in, in the earthquakes for or, or you know whatever they are, but the hurricanes for that it's a hurricane. Um, like I said earlier, it's in the it's in the the way that we're used to expecting no help, expecting the infrastructure not to work, you know, expecting for the the government officials, the U.S. government officials that work in Puerto Rico. I don't like saying the Puerto Rican government because there's really no such thing. We don't govern ourselves. Um, so the, the the you know we're a military occupation to this day. So so expecting that treatment, expecting it to be clear of what our relationship is, we're used to that. Like the people in Puerto Rico that are in the mountains and in the beaches and the people that that rely, you know, that we know we expect not to be, uh, as you guys know, are well aware. Uh, we expect that, or so we know how that the, the problem lies in the not having the opportunity and the the power to construct the infrastructure ourselves, to to uh, take care of the education system ourselves on our own, uh, without the 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 oversight or the control of of these entities that okay. are either are either really bad at what they do. Okay, or really, okay. or really, or really evil. So, Monse, you know, you're heading down there this evening, and so, what do you expect to do as soon as you hit the ground there? Are you, you're flying down? I would, I would assume. And what's the first thing you're going to do when you get home? Oh man, hug my mom and dad. I can't wait to see them. You know, a bit uh, something that, that that occurs a lot, especially when you live in the mountains like I do, is the 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 phone goes, the 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 Wi-Fi goes. Um, there's no way to communicate. So when was the last little... time? When did? When was the last time you communicated oh, no, with your no, family? No, no, no. I, no, I, you know, we, we have, we have, you know, I have a cousin that I call that goes, oh, you know, and brings the phone to them. Like, you know, we communicate. There's, you know, it's not, it's not like Maria where it's completely, uh, you know, it, it, but, but it, it, it has been more difficult. So I'll go a day or a day and a half, and 
you know, without. But now that they have electricity, now we're able to communicate. Now the Wi-Fi, we could plug in, you know. You know, people, you know, we, we like this living unplugged thing, but uh, lifestyle. But, you know, when the light goes, when the electricity goes, you know, all that goes with it. So you have to learn how to live without being plugged in. You know, that that's what, that's a, that's a, you know, back to that. You know, that's you're just being, you know, the people... You know the tribes in Puerto Rico. Uh, you know the 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 the, the natives, the people. They know. You know that it's all about uh, farming. You know that we have to have our own. You know we know how to. You know so we're used to it. It's just uh, it's just uh, the fact of um, the abuse that goes on and the the advantageous uh, situations that have a lot that that occur. You know you have people that are taking in. Uh, Funds to go to Puerto Rico, and you don't know where those, you know, not that I, not for profits. You know, just make sure you know, because what we've done is I, I have three homes in my town that are complete total losses. Um, these families lost everything; they're completely destroyed. So I connect people. If you go to my Instagram at Montesas, M-O-N-S-E-S, S-A-Y-S, um, I, I people that want to help. I connect them directly to the family, and they ask the family what they need. Okay, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because we always have these unfortunate events of fraud and things like that. Anytime there's a natural disaster, these kinds of folks come out of the woodwork and solicit donations and things like that. So, Monse, I I know your time is limited. I know you are heading home this evening, so uh, safe travels to you and and, and best best of wishes to you and your family as well. Thanks for joining us. Folks, uh, if you've got a question, if you're concerned about the the damage of of these hurricanes, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. Tribal leaders make difficult decisions every day and face constant criticism from the public. The COVID pandemic was an unprecedented health crisis with few good options. In the first of a series of conversations with tribal leaders, we'll hear about the difficulties and successes tribal leaders encounter on a daily basis. That's on the next Native America Calling. Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. Work with experts in the field to form strategies and build relations to better the future of repatriation at the 8th Annual Repatriation Conference, October 11th, 12th, and 13th, hosted by the Association on American Indian Affairs and the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians. Learn more at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about tribal responses to natural disasters and their emergency management preparedness. Tell us what you know about your tribal emergency management services. You can join the conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Jake Heflin is on the line and speaking with us from Long Beach, California. He is the president and CEO of ITEMA, the Tribal Emergency Management Association. He's also a fire captain. He's Osage in Cherokee. He's been on the show before. Jake, welcome back. It's great to be back. Jake, listening to Monse talk about the destruction down there in Puerto Rico and watching the newsreels of the destruction down in Florida last week, it got me thinking about the tribes in that region. But 
Many tribes across Native America face risks from natural disasters. How well prepared are Native communities in the event of hurricanes, fires, flooding, tornadoes, earthquakes, all that stuff? Well, I think it, I think it varies. I think that uh, history tends to repeat itself. And I think that's one thing that we need to consistently drive home to communities across this country, uh, and for that matter, across the world, but, but specifically in Indian country, we know through our stories and through our traditions and the, and the things that we've heard from our grandparents and our elders about where we are vulnerable, uh, where, where we have traditionally or historically been vulnerable to these types of, of incidents. And whether that goes back to generations from a, a famine or flooding or situations where they would prepare their, their, their homes or areas of, of, of living they, they would prepare it in high ground so they would be uh, minimize their risk of flooding or they would create areas of storage for, for grains and, and other, other, uh, other types of food uh, sustenance that would keep them during periods of, of, of drought or famine. So preparedness has been something that we've been practicing since time immemorial. We, we didn't call it preparedness. We just called it survival. And as tribal communities, I firmly believe we're amongst the most resilient of communities across this world because we're still here, we're still practicing our language, we're still practicing our culture, and still have our traditions uh, intact. Yeah, really good points there, Jake. And um, so, uh, you know, there are there only so many things that tribes can do to prepare uh, in, in the event of these disasters? I mean, it just seems like, you know, when they hit, they just the effects are so far reaching. I'm just curious, what does it really take to, I mean, how can you plan for something that just could be so, so extreme on so many levels? It just seems overwhelming almost. It, it, it can be. And I think that if you look at it from the perspective of what you see on the news and what you see in, you know, these types of clips that we're seeing all over uh, social media about the impacts, the impacts are severe. There's no question about it. I think the, the idea though about preparedness, preparedness starts small. Preparedness is not a monumental effort and an unmonumental undertaking. And, and we talk about, well, our tribes prepared, but it really what I want to bring it back down to are the individuals within the tribes prepared, right? Are the individual families prepared? Because really that's where preparedness starts. It starts at the families. It starts at, at you and, and me and, and taking actions and things that we can do right now to make a difference. And I think that's really the important conversation here. And, and oftentimes it just starts with a conversation. It doesn't require a whole you know, significant substantial amount of money to have these conversations that can make a significant difference. And I'll, I'll use this just as an example. Let's talk about home fire safety and, and preparedness. And one of the key components that I talk about with home fire and safety preparedness is, is this, just the conversation about having a safe meeting place. And, you know, if you, your smoke detector would go off in your home uh, and you're, you have your kids there, your grandkids there, do they know what to do? Do they know that when the smoke detector goes off that they are supposed to uh, make sure that there's no, obviously no smoke in their room. Uh, hopefully their door is closed. And I encourage people to close doors at night, especially parents or, or, or those that are taking care of young children, because the do a closed door prevents the potential, minimizes or reduces the potential spread of fire. It provides valuable time for people to get out. And so the idea is that there's little things we can do. Just closing the door at night, for one, for one example, is a small step uh, in the sleeping areas. But the idea is that when the smoke detector goes off, that the kids know, uh, or the, the family knows for that matter, to get down low to the ground, to feel the door for heat. And if the door is cold, to open the door slowly. 
their smoke to crawl beneath the smoke to get out and go to a safe meeting place in front of uh, or near the house, whether that's a tree or some other predetermined location. But the interesting thing is when I talk across the country about this, uh, I often, people don't, haven't really identified a safe meeting place. And it's not because they don't care. It's not because they don't think about it. They just, it's just not something that they comes to mind or something that's a priority. But yet on the flip side, I'll, I'll, let me ask you this. If you get on an airplane and pretty much anyone can complete this sentence, if you fly fairly frequently, they can tell you exactly where the exits are in a plane. They can tell you exactly what you're supposed to do when the oxygen mask drops from the ceiling, right? You're supposed to put it on yourself first before you put it on your child. You know, your seat could be used as a personal flotation device, but <laughs> every I mean, flight, everyone knows that. Every, right? flight. Every, every flight knows that. Yeah. But yeah. yet I can guarantee you the likelihood of a fire in your home is much more likely to happen than an aircraft emergency. Everyone knows what to do in an aircraft emergency, but they don't have the real guidance or direction on what to do at a fire in their home. Let's go with that, Jay, because what I, I'm curious here, so these are all really good insights, really good tips. So where do you recommend that families, you know, get some of this information, like what you're describing, just, you know, the, the safe place in the home, an exit strategy? Uh, are there programs? Do some tribes offer like, like some training on this or maybe just going on YouTube and, and looking at videos? What are some good resources where people can learn some of this? Because really, really what it sounds like is just being prepared and then just some common sense approaches. It, it is. And I think, you know, it's really interesting that you say that because uh, coming up next week is Fire Prevention Week, October 9th to the 15th. Uh, and the uh, actual uh, the, the, the slogan for the Fire Prevention Week this year is uh, fires won't wait plan your escape. And I think that's really, really fitting to this conversation that we're having. And there are some great resources. And I, I you know, for instance, right now, you can go on to nfpa.org. Uh, uh, NFPA is, is really the kind of the, 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 the guidance for, for Fire Prevention Week, the National Fire Protection Agency. And, and, and what they do is they have a lot of resources, uh, especially because it's Fire Prevention Week. Um, but you can take a look at just, for instance, if we talk about escape planning, we can Talk about what escape planning looks like and what, what that means and, and just the conversations about making a home fire escape plan, right? The, the idea of knowing at least two ways to get out of every room and having an outside meeting place like a tree, a light pole, or a mailbox and practicing these home fire drills at night or during the day when everyone's at home. But it, like I said, it, it really starts, close the doors when you leave, right? So the idea is when the smoke alarm sounds, get out and stay out. And, and, and I, this is... This is a lot harder because what, in the context of this conversation, we, we talk about some statistics, and it's maybe only 71% of Americans have an escape plan in case of fire, but only 47 of those have practiced it. And I can guarantee you when the situation of the disaster strikes, you rely back on what you know. And unfortunately, when you don't know what to do, that sets in panic, and panic creates chaos. And, and, and that's where people uh, don't have a clearly defined process on what to do, and I think that's really important. And Jake, it's interesting you mentioned that practice component, right? Because it just needs to be, it needs to be instinct when, when it hits. You, you can't think about it. You need to just know exactly what the plan is. And, and you mentioned the airline safety and how everybody knows when you get on a plane and a lot of people, you know, sleep right through it, but they give that safety presentation. It used to be the, the flight attendant would actually walk down the aisle with the, the, the mask. And now a lot of times it's just a video, but I've always wondered, like, I've always thought, you know, what would really happen if you were on a plane and there was an emergency? And I've always thought it would make sense if, like, in airports, if they had, like, a little, like, airplane set up and you could actually train. Like, they had a little space. 
where passengers just traveling through an airport could like get on a plane and like practice exiting it. I've just always said that would be useful because until you've actually done some type of training, I always just worry how effective it is. Um, so that idea of practicing, like just um, as simple as just getting a family together and just an exit strategy, um, that's just all really, really fascinating. And, and, and Jake, tell us a little bit more about some of the tribes that you work with and help them with these emergency disaster programs and planning. Well, for, for me, you know, as it relates to what we've done and, and the Tribal Emergency Management Association, ITEMA, uh, and I'm certainly right now working in partnership with a, a California tribe here called the Ohlone Tribe of Carmel, the first settlers of, of Chino Valley. They were an awardee of the Listos California grant to specifically go out and do outreach into tribal communities, uh, as was ITEMA in, in years prior. Uh, really, what our, my focus has been is, is developing programs that uh, really institutionalize uh, what we've already done for for centuries, and that's this idea of taking care of ourselves, our families, and our neighbors. And that and the, the best program that I am aware of that really focuses on that is the CERT program or Community Emergency Response Teams. Uh, it's a it's a it's a program sanctioned by FEMA but delivered and managed locally. And I am uh, I am, have made it a mission of mine is to develop CERT programs in tribal communities because it really. It, it, it speaks to these things about preparedness, but it also brings in other modules about, for instance, what you would do in a medical emergency or how you actually put a fire out with a fire extinguisher, right? Putting a fire with a fire extinguisher seems uh, almost second nature, but, but you would be shocked that uh, as a firefighter, what I have seen as it relates to people trying to read directions on the, the side of the fire extinguisher uh, when the fire is getting larger every second. It's and, too late at that point, what happens, right? It, it, 100%. And so the idea is if I were to tell you, first of all, about a fire extinguisher, and we like, again, back to my point, there's the right extinguisher for the right product that's on fire, right? You certainly don't want to use a water extinguisher on a flammable liquid fire. It, 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 creates, it creates a significantly larger fire. And so understanding what that process looks like, having a multi-purpose dry chemical extinguisher or an ABC extinguisher in your home is important. But understanding the importance of how to pull the pin aim at the base of the fire, squeeze a trigger and sweep, right? That past mnemonic that we talk about or maybe even learned in our third grade fire safety education program. When you're an adult, all of a sudden, it's like you, these things just go out of your mind. In high school and elementary school, you knew exactly what to do when the, smoke, the fire alarm went off. You practiced it, right? Uh, you, everyone got in an orderly fashion. Hopefully, you were in the middle of a test and you're like, yes, right? You, you proceed in an orderly <laughs> fashion out to some predetermined place on the playground and and they took role, and undoubtedly they found Johnny was missing, and he was in the bathroom, and somebody had to go back and get him. We did really good when we were young and, and, and in high school and elementary school and in college. But then when we became adults, we just we didn't practice that anymore. And so mm -hmm. these are those things that are essential to survival, understanding how to, the, the simple thing about even how to use a fire extinguisher. The CERT program touches on those things and really gets into that and actually – Everyone that goes through my start class, you know, they actually practice putting out a, a real fire with a fire extinguisher. And you'd be shocked at just the empowerment that comes with that. And so that's, to me, what this is about. Uh, it's about okay. really finding these solutions and, and, and going out and training the tribal communities to develop this structure that, uh, that works well with, with other partners, with, with their local jurisdictions that surround them. And, and oftentimes, many tribal communities may not have those robust, strong first responder capabilities within their community, and they rely on outside jurisdictions. So the, the CERT program 
can also be a stopgap to provide that support uh, for the tribal communities when that when those events happen. And Jake, you're talking a lot about fires. Um, what about some of these other risks that we face in Native America, the, the tornadoes, um, the flooding, the CERT deal with those, those potential risks as well? Absolutely. CERT, CERT deals with is all hazards, what we call, we identify as all hazards and all risk. I mean, obviously, they're, they're, they're community members. They're, they're not necessarily trained professionals, uh, but they are given a, enough information to know how to act when a disaster strikes. And so the, the goal is to cover some of these topics and look at your community, your specific tribal community and say, where are our vulnerabilities? Back to my point about the first conversation we had in the discussion here is historically, what are our vulnerabilities? So historically, what disasters potentially happen in our community? Let's just talk about flooding, for instance, which is a huge issue for many tribal communities. First of all, it's that's finding that safe shelter right away, right? Do not walk or, or swim or drive through floodwaters. There's a saying that we talk about with floodwaters, turn around, don't drown. Because remember, in the context of flooding, just six inches of moving water can knock you down, and one foot of moving water is enough to sweep a vehicle away. That's pretty remarkable when you think about, oh, I'll just drive through it, it's no big deal, I have a car. Staff bridges over the fast moving water, and depending upon the type of flooding, if you are told to evacuate, do so. Move to higher ground and, and stay where you are, or you know, if you're in a safe place, stay where you are. I think that, that the issue here is that we need to listen to those emergency warnings. And so there are, you know, when I talk about these five points of preparedness, um, I, I believe wholeheartedly that they're easy to uh, institute in your life. And I'll step, start with step one. And this works for all disasters. Get alerts and know what to do. First of all, if you are in an area or your community, know how you receive emergency alerts and warnings. And once you get those alerts and warnings, do you listen to what they say and know where to go. Make sure that if you don't have those, you talk with your tribal leadership about institutionalizing a process for alerts and warnings that can be used in your tribal community. The next part is making a plan to protect your people, right? Making a plan, right? whether that's an escape plan, whatever that is, a fire safety plan. But to get to safety, and step three is I said, get to safety with things you need, you know, whether that's a go bag and some of those essential items. So we can talk a little bit more in, in, in depth about that. But step four would be stay safe at home when you can't leave. And then step five would be helping friends and neighbors get ready. So these are those steps that I think we can take uh, collectively to make sure that we are, are, are preparing ourselves and our families. And I mean, that could be a simple thing like just packing a go bag, right? Something that you can grab and go if you need to, uh, that if you had 15 minutes notice to leave your home, think about what would you take with you? And what happened if you only had two minutes, what would you take with you, right? So having those things, uh, inside of your your back your pack might be very valuable and beneficial to you. And we can talk a little bit about that, but that might that even includes you know building a stay box, right? Having enough food and water for your family. You know we talk about water. You know we, water we know as Native people water is life, and we know that at this point as it relates to what water is, we know we need a gallon of water per person per day in your family. So for a normal family, four four members, four, four gallons of water. And we say you should have enough water, right, uh, to last anywhere from, depending upon how remote you might be, up to a week. So four gallons times seven days, that's 28 gallons of water. And so uh, the other thought is, is even in preparedness is how would you purify your water? You know, whether you bring it to a, a rolling boil or a drops of unscented household bleach per gallon of water. If it's let it stand for 30 minutes before consumption or if it's cloudy, 16 drops of unscented household bleach 
let it stand for 30 minutes. But these are those little things that can make a big difference because without food and water, you're in trouble. We need to have a plan. And I think that's the conversation about preparedness that needs to resonate throughout uh, Indian country. It starts with you and it starts with your family. Well, Jake, you've really got my, my wheels turning here and, <laughs> and, and my wife is on this page cause she's definitely big on storing the water, but geez, 28, I didn't think of that. I mean, one gallon for each family member for our family, that would be three gallons a day. Yeah. I mean, it adds up quickly. I don't think we've got that much water sock, socked away, but I, I think we're going to have to start thinking about that. And I like all these little tips and, uh, Fires won't wait, plan your escape, turn around, don't drown. Really, really good information we're learning here today from Jake Heflin. He's a fire captain, and he's also president and CEO of the Tribal Emergency Management Association. Folks, if you've experienced a natural disaster and you feel comfortable sharing what you went through, or if you have any tips of your own for how to be prepared and how to safeguard your family and your community, we'd love to hear them. 1-800-996-2848. We'll be back right after this break. Early voting has started, but with possible changes in district lines and state election laws, it's more important than ever to know how, when, and where to vote. That's why AARP created state-specific election guides where you can find up-to-date information about how to register, where to vote, the rules for early voting, and key deadlines. You don't have to let uncertainty about the election process keep you from voting. Learn more at aarp.org slash election guides. AARP supports this show. Thanks for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. SpaceX Dragon, go for launch. That is audio from just more than an hour ago of the SpaceX Dragon launch. The NASA mission is commanded by Wailaki tribal member Nicole Mann. She's the first Native American woman in space and is scheduled to spend the next six months aboard the International Space Station. Her achievement comes 20 years after Chickasaw pilot John Harrington became the first Native American in space. We want to take time to acknowledge the milestone, and we hope to hear more from Mann in the coming days. There's still time to join our conversation about Tribal Emergency Management Services. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We've got another guest. He's on the line in Honolulu, Hawaii, Adam Weintraub. He is the Communication Director for Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. Adam, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Glad to be joining you. Uh, I guess good morning and or good afternoon, depending on where you're listening from. <laughs> yeah, we've got folks all over Native America, different time zones. And I know it's definitely morning where you are there uh, on, in Honolulu. So appreciate you getting up early and joining us. And Adam, we've been talking uh, about hurricanes. We've been talking about fires. And, and, and I'm curious, are hurricanes a serious threat in Hawaii? Or is it the volcanic eruptions and earthquakes? Or are those the larger concerns? 
Uh, hurricane is certainly one of our top hazards here in Honolulu. Um, we and across the state, we're uh, a good 2,000 miles from any assistance or resupply. So uh, when you see the warnings go out on the East Coast or along the Gulf Coast for a hurricane, people can retreat inland. We don't have nearly as much inland to retreat to. And when it's time to, to do repairs, uh, it's not like you can just pull a truck out onto the interstate and come on down the road to help us out. Everything has to come in by container ship. So we're quite conscious of the threat and uh, our isolation makes it even more uh, a higher entry on what we call our threat matrix. And are hurricanes a common occurrence then in Hawaii? Well, we're uh, in a sweet spot for ocean currents. So we have not had Thankfully, I'm looking for some wood in my car to knock on. The only thing I can find <laughs> is my head. Um, we have not had frequent occurrences, but uh, even a near miss in Hawaii can cause significant effects. Uh, the most uh, we just recently observed the 30th anniversary of Hurricane Iniki, uh, which was a direct hit on the island of Kauai, and uh, even 30 years ago did more than two billion dollars worth of damages. That would be about a five billion dollar storm uh, today. Uh, but uh, even as recently as 2018, uh, we had Hurricane Lane come within basically a day, a day and a half travel, a travel of a direct hit on Honolulu. And uh, the trough over our islands uh, sheared off the top of that storm, and we caught a lucky break, and it did not make landfall. It weakened and moved out to sea. So we like to tell people it only takes one, uh, and it doesn't even take a direct hit. Uh, a near miss can drop as much as 20 or 25 inches of rain, uh, and that produces all of the hazard and, and outcomes that you might imagine. We have flash flooding. We have winds. Uh, tearing roofs off, even if we don't have landfall. So how prepared uh, is the is the island of Hawaii in, in the, in the, with the risks of these hurricanes? Um, we try to do a campaign every year to encourage people. The, the point that you made, that this is not a frequent occurrence where we have a direct hit with major damage, that in some ways uh, can hurt us when it comes to preparedness because people get in the habit of thinking, oh, there hasn't been one recently. It can't happen here. It, they always miss us. But we've got eight islands, in the, uh, eight major islands uh, spread across hundreds of miles of ocean, and each one has unique conditions. So we try to operate from the assumption that the more resilient that people are in their own abilities to deal with the impacts of a storm, uh, the more available resources are for the people who really cannot help themselves. So everybody who's resilient uh, and can bend instead of breaking makes more resources available for the people who are squarely in harm's way. So we do a campaign. We encourage people. I think a lot of your previous guests uh, covered a lot of uh, the preparatory tasks because we also take that all hazards approach where uh, evacuation and having a safety plan and having uh, a way to shelter in your home if you need to. Those can apply to uh, a tsunami. They can apply to a seismic event, um, any of those kinds of hazards, and particularly hurricanes, because that is, as we say, a high-risk, high-damage kind of an event that presents uh, a tremendous risk to life and safety for a wide swath of, of the Hawaiian Islands. 
Now, the emergency management strategies there in Hawaii, have they changed over the years in terms of dealing with some of these um, modern weather phenomena that we're experiencing more? Well, I think we've recognized that the isolation of uh, Hawaii from uh, resupply and from assistance makes it important that we uh, encourage our, our visitors and our residents uh, to be more aware and to be ready for a longer period of time of operating on their own in isolation. Uh, so while your previous guest talked about anywhere from three to seven days of supplies, we encourage residents uh, across the state of Hawaii to uh, be what we call two weeks ready. Uh, and if you thought uh, 28 gallons of water was a lot, 54, or uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> that's a lot of storage to commit to. Uh, but as I like to tell people who raise that as an objection, every day that you can stand on your own is a day when we don't have to send somebody to check on you and make sure you're okay or rescue you. So, so that kind of resilience, <laughs> even taking the first step. Uh, so, so two weeks ready is the watchword here. Uh, we've also, in our assessment, uh, we obviously look at historical patterns. Uh, we do know that the data is starting to show that with this warmer uh, climate, uh, storms are getting stronger. They are getting stronger faster, what they call intensification. You can move from a tropical storm all the way up to a Cat 3 or a Cat 4 hurricane in just 24 or 48 hours. They used to take uh, historically longer than that. We've seen that with a lot of the big storms. Uh, they also have tended, because they can carry more water vapor, to uh, be bigger in extent and to drop more water if they park over a land area. So we factored a lot of that into our thinking and uh, we're, we're working with some of our partners to uh, update some of our inundation maps. Uh, we've got projections of how high a storm surge is likely to affect uh, our coastline based on different intensities of storms and different wind patterns. Um, we, we may need to revisit some of that because of the wider extent of some of these storms and the fact that we're seeing stronger storms these days. Mm -hmm. Well, Adam, I can't get it right. So 54 gallons, I mean, I'm just thinking like a, a typical home for somebody, you know, I, I mean, do you have recommendations for how to store that much water? Do maybe people have little emergency shelters or little caches or, or you know, some type of area where they can put all those supplies? Because that, that's a lot of stuff. Even the idea of that is daunting for a lot of people. It's why it's hard for folks to get started in some cases, because they get they hit that first obstacle and they go, I don't even have room in my garage for that much. And I live in a condo. <laughs> um, so um, let alone the, the, the more isolated communities that, that some of your listeners may be familiar with. Um, but as I say, a, a start is a start. Uh, one thing that I didn't hear discussed earlier is that uh, luckily with a hurricane, you've got some lead time. It's not like a hurricane just pops up in your backyard. You can see it coming for two or three days. Uh, at the point when you have to start sheltering, one good plan is to fill up your bathtub. Uh, that can provide uh, water for several days. Um, and it's a step that you can take. It, it's not going to be the kind of thing you could do for a tsunami. It's not going to be the kind of thing you can do for a tornado, those short notice incidents. Uh, but with a threat that you can see coming, the bathtub can provide several days worth of water for a small family. Uh, 
another thing that we tell people to think about is that think about all of your needs, not just food and water. Food and water is the baseline, but so many of our, uh, our what we call kupuna here, the, the older people, uh, have medical needs. So when you're thinking about how to stash supplies so that you're ready in case you have to get up and go in a hurry, uh, don't forget maintenance prescriptions. Don't forget medications, especially those that might require refrigeration. If you've got a family member who's got diabetes and needs to keep their insulin uh, secured and refrigerated so that it stays good, you might want to have a cooler ready to go uh, in with your supplies and your go kit uh, and be able to grab an ice pack out of the, the freezer before you head out the door. Things like that. It's, it's why we say the first step is make a plan. Uh, if you haven't thought about this stuff in advance, uh, then when the moment comes, you're scrambling. You're, you're trying to react in the moment, and you've had a jolt of adrenaline that says get out or get ready, and it doesn't always make it easy to think clearly. So if you can sit down and talk it through with your family, think about what your needs are and uh, how to meet them when things do get intense, uh, you're that much more prepared when the day comes, if it comes. And Adam, I'm also curious to know uh, or learn more about the building codes there in Hawaii. Have those changed over the years in, in order to make buildings safer and stronger in the event of really, really adverse weather? We have seen some improvements in the business code, uh, of the building codes. Uh, I think uh, you would find uh, mixed opinions on whether they are where they should be. Uh, we believe that there are uh, more modern building codes that could improve safety, but we have seen uh, a move towards more uh, wind-resistant structures, uh, hurricane clips, uh, things of that nature. Um, but the, the building code process in Hawaii tends to be a little slower than it is some places uh, in uh, North America proper. Um, in part, I think, I, I point to the fact uh, that California has an earthquake that's serious enough to knock things down every 10 years. They've got much more up-to-date seismic standards than a lot of places do because they have a regular reminder of what can happen if you don't strengthen your buildings. Uh, so I think uh, the, the nature of the construction industry here, we've maybe been a little slower to adopt than places like Florida, uh, but there has been improvement over the years, and, and we do offer resources. Uh, our website is at ready.hawaii.gov, and there is a tab under there called Get Ready uh, that's got a link to uh, a book that we and our partners at the University of Hawaii publish every couple of years that has uh, a detailed instructions on how to strengthen your structures, your home, whatever, uh, to make it more resistant. And that includes how to install hurricane clips, how to do tie-downs. Uh, there's even a discussion of, of safe rooms if you've got the resources to install something like that. Uh, and we're also looking at ways to incorporate some tax breaks into the, the state system that could uh, provide some financial incentives for people to add those uh, we're also trying to get a seat on the state building code council so that we can have a direct influence on that because we do believe that a stronger building code saves money in the long run by preventing damage. Adam, do, do the Native Hawaiian communities, do they face any unique risks with regard to hurricanes and some of these other natural disasters? Well, I think because uh, some of the Native Hawaiian communities here are some distance out from the urban centers, 
uh, and maybe a little harder to get to by road. Um, they are, it, it's not unique, but they are more subject to the hazards of isolation. Uh, if you've only got one road that runs to your community from each direction and one side of that road washes out, uh, that creates uh, quite a challenge as far as getting resources in to assist with uh, sustaining life and with reconstructing uh, structures after the hazard has passed. So I think that's the, probably the primary one. Uh, we do have some uh, Native Hawaiian communities uh, where there are income challenges, and anytime uh, you have uh, a low-income population, that makes it somewhat more difficult for them to avail themselves of the kinds of uh, construction improvements that we've talked about. So some of those homes may be more susceptible because they tend to be older and built to the earlier building codes. So, so I think those are, are, are two that uh, they're not unique to the Native Hawaiian communities, but I think they probably fall a little bit more heavily on them. Well, you mentioned tax breaks uh, to help folks shore up their homes. Are there any other programs or resources available for folks that, that need help just having a safer dwelling to live in? Uh, well, one thing that I'm not sure anybody on the show has talked about so far is the importance of if you do own a property, uh, talk to your insurance agent about what your coverage is, because many people don't realize that homeowners insurance frequently, almost never, covers flood damage. Mm. Uh, if you're in an area where there is uh, a wash by your home, a drainage area, uh, if you are at the base of a hill and uh, you get rain uphill and you have damage to your home that is attributable to that flood water, if you don't have a special flood policy, you may be out of luck and the only relief that you might be in line for would be some of the FEMA disaster relief and that is not uh, intended to bring you back to the condition you were in before the storm it's just to make the property habitable again so if you have the resources to look into it consider whether adding flood policies uh, or in areas where they're available wind policies does that make sense for your household? Because it can be the difference between being able to rebuild or having to start from scratch when uh, a storm actually hits. Well, folks, uh, the information here really helpful today. Make a plan. Be prepared. Check with those insurance companies. Make sure you've got the right coverage. Uh, some of this stuff is common sense. Some of it takes a little bit of elbow grease. But uh, wishing you all well safety in the months ahead. We have reached the end of the hour. Let's thank our guests, Monse Torres, Jake Heflin, and Adam Weintraub. Join us tomorrow for a show talking with tribal leaders about facing difficult decisions during crisis. Thank you for listening. I'm Sean Spruce. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one of a kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. If you or someone you know is feeling sad, hopeless, or experiencing a mental health or substance use crisis, call, text, or chat 988. 988 is a new three-digit dialing code for 24-7 emotional, mental, or substance misuse support. 988 connects you to free, confidential support. You are not alone in a crisis. Just call, 
text or chat 988. For more information, visit 988.nm.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.